Alrighty, we are back for another exciting edition of Cloverleaf Radio. Cloverleaf Radio, I'm the host of the most, the king of the quarantine, Jimmy Falcon, and it is an absolute honor to welcome legendary director, actor, animator, writer, Gary Trousdale. How's it going, Gary? Going okay. Well, of course you started off wanting to be something that involved drawing, but in a different sense, an architect. What led you to animation and to the Disney company? And of course, you mentioned the past alumni of the show was your mentor, Disney legend Floyd Norman. When did you first meet Floyd, and what are some of the best things he taught you? Yeah. 
where um, you know they're they're looking for students, they're looking for young students to you know start at the ground floor and work with uh, industry professionals. And a bunch of us piled in the car and drove down there, and like three of us got jobs on the spot. And as the, this was uh, this was a studio that was run by Phil Mendez, um, who was like you know former animator and brilliant artist himself, and Leo Sullivan, who you know had been he was like one of Floyd's partners you know for, for years and years and years. So Phil pushed us into Leo's office. Leo hired us, um, and then as Phil was was touring us around, he was he was introducing us to everybody, and there was only like a dozen people at this place at that time, and. Uh, one of the guys said, oh, that, that guy over there that looks like a janitor, that's Floyd Norman. And that's, that was my introduction to Floyd. Um, he was a story a storyboard artist. And, I mean, what, what his influence was, was he was just so goddamn funny. I mean, his, his style was, was, it was, a, I won't say rough, but it was like kind of cartoony. You know, he wasn't doing like, um, like, cinematography um, kind of storyboards. He was he was getting the emotion and the gags across. And that was that was something right there that I oh god, I don't have to render the background. It's it's just the story point that I'm looking for. Plus he had um, just reams and reams of gag drawings that didn't go into the movie at all. It was just about the bosses or his previous bosses at Hanna Barbera or just, you know, life in general. Just cartoons that he was like, oh going, 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 just always drawing, always thinking, and that was a real inspiration, too, and kind of, kind of gave me permission to do that later in my career, like when I was, not that much later, a few years later when I was at uh, Disney as a, as a special effects in-betweener and assistant, um, things would come up, and I would comment on them, like, by drawing cartoons, putting them on the wall, and nobody knew who I was, you know, that, that was the beauty of it, it's like, here's this like really subversive cartoon and who did it it's like <laughs> some guy in effects you know we don't know who it is so yeah I mean a, a number of things but I mean just just his his story sense and his his comic sense and his his irreverence were like invaluable <clears throat> absolutely I thought it was really nice talking to him and hearing like first hand stories of working with Walt <clears throat> And you mentioned working in a pizza joint. I work in a pizza joint now, so are you saying I should get into animation? <laughs> it's not out of the question, no. <laughs> well, a lot of people who work in animation and direct animated films usually start with small-budget, small-scale projects. You, however, started with the now-iconic Beauty and the Beast. What are your fondest memories of working on this legendary film? And did you ever imagine it becoming such an iconic Disney feature? Fondest memories. I don't know if I have like one single fond memory because there were there were quite a lot. I mean, it was it was crazy and the schedule was insane. And when Kirk and I were, were promoted to directors, we had been directing for months already. Uh, um, when you know when Jeffrey Katzenberg called us in after our first major screening and said, "All right, guys, you're, you're it. You're real boys now. Uh, you're really directors." Instead of, they had just called us acting directors before that. 
he when he promoted us to the real thing, that was pretty good. But also working with people, you know, like you know, like Chris Sanders and Brenda Chapman and Howard Ashman and, and you know, just like all these people who were just the top of the field was was really great. You know, Brian McEntee and uh, Bruce Woodside, like all these good we had we had the A team. This is what Don Hunt um said I mean we were the we were the last of, of the uh, of the single uh, single production crews um, after Beauty and the Beast Disney split the crew into two because they wanted to do two features a year or you know have them come out a lot faster so we had to split the crew and after that point there were people that we never worked with again because they were always on the like the you know the Ringling Brothers has they had like the red the red circus and the blue circus and one does the east coast one does the west coast that was what we were you know we had we had the red team and the blue team and they very rarely ever crossed paths after that so you know there were there were people that we worked with on beauty and the beast that it, it was like the top 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 talent the a team that after that was broken up and we you know we never we never worked with them and that's not to say we didn't see them again we just you know they were always working with Ron and John and they're working with Mike and Handel or you know whatever, whatever it was um, did I think it was going to do what it did absolutely not and we were just trying to get this thing done on time we were just trying to meet our deadline and not embarrass ourselves we wanted to make something that would stand up um, you know stand toe to toe with the great animation movies of our past you know with, with like Snow White and Sleeping Beauty and Pinocchio and we didn't want to embarrass ourselves we wanted to be able to like stand in their company and not have to cringe um, so so the idea that this was going to be something big didn't really cross our minds until I don't know when it was um, we were we were fairly well along when Brian McEntee who was our art director at the time came up to us and we had had a screening recently and he said you guys you're, you're going to make a hundred million dollars on this and we literally laughed at him. We said, "No, I mean, animated movies did not make that much money. Right. The most, the most an animated movie from Disney had made before that was Little Mermaid. They made like, I think, '86, and that was like unbelievable. That was like through the roof. People were just like fainting from, you know, from that accomplishment. And for Brian to say you're going to make 100 million, we, we just thought he was just being stupid. But he he actually he actually lowballed it. Wow. No, we, we didn't know. Yeah, I <clears throat> I look back now and have such fond memories of watching a lot of the films you worked on, uh, of course, including Beauty and the Beast and Hunchback of Notre Dame, even The Rescuers Down Under, but one I especially loved was Atlantis, The Lost Empire, starring Michael J. Fox, James Garner, Jim Varney, and a host of others, which you also directed in 2001, but I saw the idea came about in 1996, what were some of the earliest, <clears throat> excuse me, ideas for the film, and how much of those came to the final project? Um, well, okay, so the ideas that you're talking about from 1996, I don't think those were from us. Those may have been, because um, there was, I guess there was talk of doing a project with Joss Whedon and the man who would be king, and he threw the word Atlantis into it, and um, that may have started back then. We never saw that. You know, we, that was stuff that we never, we weren't even aware of until, you know, almost after the, uh, after our production was finished. Um, we started 
it was it was after Hunchback was finished, and we were kind of <clears throat> we were kind of coasting along. You know, we were like, okay, so that was that was really difficult, and it was long and tiring, and we're just gonna like kind of cruise and you know just do visual development or maybe pitching on some storyboards for a little bit. And so we weren't really working that hard then, and it was Don Hahn that came to us um, and said, okay, look, guys, you, you're going to have to, uh, um, if, if you're going to if you're gonna make another movie, um, you better figure out what it's going to be like yourself, what you want to do, rather than have the studio tell you what to do. So that's when we got together, um, Don Hahn, Kirk Wise, Tab Murphy, and myself, and we sat down over drinks and nachos And of course, uh, that was from what I have read, Jim Varney's last film. Uh, yes, yes, well, I mean, it was like kind of a close thing because he was also working on, uh, I think it was Toy Story 2 at the time. Because um, he, did, he did a Slinky Dog recording and then he did uh, a Cookie recording. He might have finished the Slinky Dog. He, he was not able to finish um, his role as Cookie. He needed a sound alike for his last line because he passed away. Very sad, because he was uh, 50 years old, very young, and he was such a hilarious actor, and I'm sorry my dog has been going off, they're expecting their walk. They wouldn't care if I was talking to Donald Trump right now, they'd be like, just get off the phone, walk the dogs, call me later. But um, I was, thankfully, at the end. Uh, what does the future hold for you? Yeah, what do you what do you foresee? Uh, do you have any projects coming up, or uh, what what do you see for yourself coming up in the future? Well, um, so I'm no longer with DreamWorks, um, and I was I was working in their uh, their theme park division for like the last six or seven years, um, and um, after leaving DreamWorks, uh, you know, just kind of kind of fished around for a little bit. Um, I'm doing some writing for a project for Activision, um, a, uh, uh, I, I guess it's a series, it's a, uh, a version of, uh, one of their old video games, um, that they, they want to convert into a, a, just a, you know, crazy fun series, uh, so I'm working on that, and then working with a couple other people, um, on things that I probably can't talk about. <laughs> yeah, we don't want a contract out on your head or anything, Gary. Yeah. I don't think is, is looking for uh, feature exposure or anything like that. 
all three, the, the, the two unnamed ones and the, uh, the Activision game. That is very awesome, Gary. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was really nice going back into my some of my fond childhood memories, and I wish you the best of luck in your future. Well, thanks so much. It was, it was very nice talking to you. Absolutely. Have a great night. Thanks again. You too. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. All righty, guys. Big thanks again to Gary Trousdale. And, of course, if you guys missed the last couple shows, uh, June 20th, we had on Michael Yerchak, who did a bunch of films with the Broken Lizard crew, uh, a.k.a. Super Troopers, Club Dread, Tacoma, FD, Slam and Salmon. We also have coming up June 29th, actress-producer Lisa London, known for her work in the Adam West classic The Happy Hooker Goes Hollywood. She was also in Law & Order SVU, Dragnet, the great hilarious film, and uh, the I Don't Care music video by Justin Bieber Ed, and, and uh, Ed Sheeran. So we'll be talking to her on the 29th. All right, everyone. We will be seeing you on the 29th. Thanks again for listening. Have a great night.